as we're in this this series, this changes everything. I've been kind of trying to study Old Testament principles that changed when Jesus came on the scene, right? And because when Jesus came on the scene, he changed literally everything, right? And so, so as I've been kind of examining in my head when I was planning it, it was a lot easier to put the pieces together, right? But as I'm studying it, I'm like, oh man, yes, this is so cool. Oh man, and I'm digging and I'm studying. And then I realized like some of this stuff is really heady and some of it's really like speaks to me as a nerd, but like it is difficult to communicate in a way that jumps off the pages for everyone. And so I've really been working to kind of make this stuff come alive to everybody. And so I was processing the fact that this week is communion. And I remember growing up in church, taking communion. Um, first Sunday of the month was the deal at our church. How many of you grew up in a church culture where you took communion at least once a month? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, like we do, use the little plastic thimbles with, with some juice in it? How many of you did that? Raise your hand. Okay. And then how many of you also had the little um, white bread pepperoni things that, how many of you did those? Yep. So our church, we got a little bit, we, we, we mixed it up a little bit because sometimes we did little pepperonis, but then sometimes we also did these little squares, you know, the little teeny square things. But I always like the little pepperonis because you can break them up and it, when it, when it breaks, it kind of makes that clicking sound. And it always reminds me of like the body broken. So I always like that. But one of the things that I loved when I was a kid is I would always go around and our church was larger than this one. And we had about 350, 400 people when I was growing up at church. And, and it was awesome because that means you got like 300 communion cups when you're done with church. And man, we would go around and we used to like, there was a competition with the kids and we would see how many we could collect. And the ushers loved us because they didn't have to collect them because we collected them. And man, I would get stacks. I'm not kidding you. I would get stacks like this high of communion cups. I'd be walking around and then we would make little like forts out of them and stuff like little castles and you know it was awesome I love this thing and so that was but I remember sitting in church going up and I was like man I like the juice this juice is good and I remember you know like eating the little wafer thing thinking I, couldn't they come up with better bread why does this taste so bad right this is like stale and it was like made fresh to taste stale I don't get it and so um so like I didn't really get communion. I know that they talked about the body and blood of Jesus, but I was like, that's kind of creepy, right? Like doing, I, I just, what do we do this for? And, and I'm thinking all of the times that I took communion as a kid, and I still didn't really understand why I did. I mean, I knew that it was to remember Jesus. I knew that it was to remember the crucifixion. I knew that it was about forgiveness of sin, but I didn't really understand, understand, like, what's this all about? And so, um, and honestly, even uh, when I first started pastoring, it, I had this kind of crisis of faith when I first became a lead pastor because I realized that there was nobody to punt to if I had a difficult question that somebody asked me, right? Like, I had to know why I believed what I believed. It wasn't enough for me anymore to just believe it. I had to know why I believed it. And so with everything, communion included, I really had to drill down and say, 
what is this about? Why do I believe what I believe about communion? And so I remember doing that. And then one of the most famous passages um, in Scripture that deals with communion is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you got your Bible, turn there. If you got your phone, swipe there. Um, it's funny, when I started preaching 25 years ago, I never dreamed that I would say, swipe in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? It's just kind of weird. But so, yeah, swipe there if you've got it. And I'm going to read this passage. Um, this is the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthian church, kind of about rules for communion. And, and Paul gives us some insight here that is pretty cool. So let's just read what he has to say. Verse 23 says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. Who did he receive this message from? The Lord himself. So we don't know if it was like direct revelation from Jesus because we know that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. We know that he shared some things with him. We know that Paul had some experiences where he's, he's caught up in the presence of God. We don't know if this is like a direct revelation where Jesus, or if it was just revealed to him through the disciples. But we know that he feels like he got it directly from the Lord. And so here's what he says. He says, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Do this to remember what? Me. Not to remember an event, to remember a person, right? This is not to remember the cross even. This is to remember Jesus. And so he says, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So this is, this is one of those things that's kind of cool as we, we look at it because Paul starts it by saying, on the night he was betrayed. On the night that he was betrayed. And that's one of those things that's kind of easy to just read past, right? On the night that he was betrayed. But it's significant. And it's significant because of what was going on in Jewish culture on the night he was betrayed. On the night he was betrayed, they were celebrating Passover. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus had his disciples prepare a Passover meal. This is a one-time-a-year event. And, and so in, in this season the population of Jerusalem swells from, we don't know the exact number, but 100,000 or so, and it would swell two or three times its size by pilgrims coming to celebrate the Passover. And so they would come on the Sunday before the Passover, and they would celebrate. And during this time, they would take the Passover lamb, and they would select it, and then they would take it to the temple and present it at the temple, and they would stay at the temple for about four days, interacting, doing things. So here's, here's Jesus with his disciples, and he tells his disciples, Luke's gospel again tells us this. He says, hey, I want you to go prepare the Passover meal, and we're going to celebrate together. And this is going to be the last Passover meal that they celebrate because Jesus is announcing his death to all of his disciples. All right? So, so imagine, imagine this kind of thing. It's kind of like for us, you know, we, we do 
traditional holiday celebrations annually, right? We've got, we've got Christmas that we do, and we've kind of attached, you know, Jesus' birth to that, and that's a great thing. And then we have, we have, um, we have Easter, right? It's, it's a great celebration. Easter eggs have nothing to do with Jesus rising from the dead, but it's a fun thing that we do, right? And our kids go around, they collect Easter eggs, and we're like, yeah, it's the Easter bunny, and all, it's, it's cool. And then, but then there's holidays that are unique to us as Americans, right? There's like the 4th of July. Well, the 4th of July is not unique to us. Everybody has the 4th of July. We have Independence Day that lands on the 4th of July, though, so that makes it significant. And then for us, we have Thanksgiving, Right? How many of you like Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. Love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving has a lot of great memories for me. And, and, and we've kind of attached, you know, we've got the, we've got, we cook turkey. Everybody cooks turkey on Thanksgiving. And we like, nobody makes turkey all year long. But then one time of year, we make a gigantic turkey, Right? And everybody eats it, and everybody's like, that was so good. And, you know, and, or we have people make ham, green bean casserole. Who does green bean casserole for Thanksgiving? Okay. We, in my family, we do this thing called potato casserole, which is off the charts good. And then we, then we also, we, my grandmother used to make pies, all kinds of pies. I knew Jesus loved me because of my grandmother's pies. Man, it was great. And then, of course, we watched football because that's what the pilgrims did, right? So it's like this is, this is, this is something we remember. We do it. We enjoy. But what's the point? The point is to remember something very specific that happened in our history. So we build celebrations around these things to make it special for us. Well, that's what the Jewish people did around Passover. Well, what does it celebrate? What does it celebrate? It celebrates the deliverance from Egypt. So turn in your Bible over to Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to kind of set the stage here. So you guys remember the Israelites. Do you remember how they got into Egypt to begin with? There, there was this great famine in the land. And Joseph, you know, the guy with the Technicolor dream coat, right? He goes as a slave to Egypt, right? And after working as a a slave for Potiphar, then he um, gets thrown into prison unjustly. After he gets thrown into prison, he serves some time in there, interprets some dreams, does some really cool stuff in there, the little magic show for the guys. And then eventually the Pharaoh says, hey, I had these dreams and I need somebody to interpret them for me. And so they, they got remember, oh man, yeah, I remember Joseph. He's good at interpreting. I'm going to get him and have him come and do this. So he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and Pharaoh puts him in charge, a second command over all of Egypt. And then remember, there's these seven years of extraordinary blessing where all of this produce is coming in the land. And they, Joseph buys up property and gets all of these things stored up. And then there's this famine that comes. And when the famine comes, Joseph is so prepared, the people of Egypt, for this famine that not only are they able to sustain themselves, but they, they turn into a superpower in the region because they're able to acquire everybody else's land because nobody has food. And they're like, well, what good's my land if I die? Of course you can have my, food, my land. I just want to eat. And so he, he takes all of this land and just amasses this uh, unbelievable amount of wealth that would set Egypt up as the region's superpower for hundreds and hundreds of years to come. 
Nobody could compete with Egypt. And it was just because of this seven-year window that shifted the balance of power. And then the Bible says that, that the Israelites lived in Egypt until a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. That's a bad day, right? When you're the outsider and all of a sudden somebody recognizes you as the outsider and says, I don't like you anymore, right? And so now all of these people that have been living in Egypt and have been living there because of their descendants' influence in the region, now all of a sudden they're slaves. And for 400 years, the Israelites live as slaves in Egypt. Just for perspective, for us, that's equivalent amount of time to when Jamestown was settled to now in American history. Think about all that's happened in the time between Jamestown settlement and where we are today. That's a lot of history, right? So in that 400 years, what happens is God's chosen people take on the DNA and the mindset of slaves. It's a different mindset. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of processing information. It's a different way of looking at yourself. What does it mean to be God's chosen people if God chose you to be a slave, right? So it's rewired how they think about themselves. And now here we are in Exodus chapter 12. And God has sent Moses to deliver the people. And what happens is, as Moses comes in, he sends this deliverer, and he, he goes to the people of Israel, and he says, hey, listen, God sent me to deliver you. And they're like, what's that even mean, right? We don't know what that means to be delivered. I mean, have you seen how many of us there are? How, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? How is this going to happen? And Moses is like, don't worry, God's got a plan. And so in the middle of this thing, God starts to send these plagues on Egypt. And the first few don't affect the, uh, the Israelites, but then it gets to a place in the plagues where it starts to affect, right? And now this final plague, this 10th plague, this is the doozy. This is the one that's ultimately going to result in their freedom, but it's also going to result in a lot of death, the 10th plague is the plague that's called the firstborn, the plague of the firstborn. And that's when the, the angel of God, people, people say the angel of death, but there is not really an angel of death in this story. It's the angel of God that comes along and the angel of God is sent to claim the firstborn son of every person in Egypt, not just the Egyptians, but the Israelites as well, because God has the right to the firstborn. And we're going to look at that in a second. But the reason that God had the ability to go in and, and kill the firstborn is because the firstborn belonged to him. And we read that throughout scripture and we're going to look at that in a second. But so here's where we pick up the story now. So chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 1, it says, While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. So God starts by changing their calendar, right? He says, all right, from now on, this is the first month. You're no longer on Egypt's calendar. Now you're on my calendar because as a free people, Time is not going to affect you the same way. You're going to be on my time, not their time. 
It's cool, right? How many of you know that God has set you free? And your schedule doesn't always appear in your mind to be the same as God's. Have you noticed that? Isn't that odd? How many of you have ever heard somebody say, God is never late, seldom early, he's always on time. I believe that God is always on his time, right? And I think what God is showing the people of Israel in this moment is, you're on my time now. I'm setting a new calendar. I'm setting a new course of events. I'm setting a new process. This is how you're going to move forward as a people. Not only are you going to take the identity as free people in me, but you're also going to adapt everything you do culturally, on your calendar, everything is going to revolve around me and what I do in you. All right, so here we go. Verse three says, announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. What day of the month is it supposed to be? The 10th, right? Okay, it doesn't seem like it's important, but pay attention. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. So it's got to be a perfect, spotless sacrifice. It says, take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. What day are they supposed to take care of it until? The 14th. What day did they start? All right, mathematicians. How many days is this? Yes, we got a good church. All right, so it's four days. What? You're a slave in Egypt. You don't have, it's not like they're like, hey, this palatial estate over here belongs to you and your family. And then this palatial estate, like it's cramped quarters. They're not looking to take care of the people of Israel. They're slaves. And so now they have this lamb that they got to take care of for four days. What are we going to do with the lamb for four days? Like, I remember when my kids asked me for this little brown rodent that they call a dog his name is chip some of you have met chip some of you have not had the pleasure chip is a dog and god bless chip now we have maggie who is awesome we love maggie she's 12 She's getting old. She's sweet. I, I don't know how much longer she has to live, but I'm, I'm confident she's going to be with Jesus one day. Chip, on the other hand, I'm not, I, I don't know. I don't have much hope for his soul. But I remember, I remember when my kids are like, Daddy, can we have him? Can we have him? And I was like, what does that even mean? Can we have him? What are we going to do with this little thing? I don't. Like, I like dogs. I just say, I like dogs. I don't like to take care of dogs. Okay? I like your dogs. 
but I, don't bring it to my house, right? Okay, I just keep, like, I'll, I'll pet your dog when I go to your house. I'll throw a ball for that dog at your house. I'll run through the backyard with that dog. We'll play, we'll have a great time, and then I'll leave him at your house, right? So I just, just I, it's just how I roll. And so, but, but Chip is in, and I'm like, what are we gonna do with this dog? And then we get the dog in our house. And dogs don't come potty trained. And male dogs are next level. What is it with these things? They think it's the greatest thing in the world to run around a whole house, pee on everything. And it's not just like on the ground. They got to pee up on stuff. And you're like, How? why would you do that? Right? And so there's this whole, and now imagine you're a dad in Israel. And your kid's like, Hey, Dad, we got a lamb. Well, what do you want me to do with the lamb? We got to keep it in the house. And so tradition says that, that for the four days while they're in Egypt, they actually have to keep the lambs in their homes for four days. What are you going to do with a lamb in your house for four days? And every time, the lamb screams or runs around or does what lambs do on stuff, right? You got to ask the question, Dad, why we got to keep the lamb in the house? Son, God's judgment is coming. And the only thing that stands between us and the judgment of God is this lamb. Wow, it just got serious all of a sudden, right? Think about this. So for four days, we got this lamb in our house that we know on the fourth day, we're going to have to kill the thing. And not only are we going to have to kill the thing, but listen to what we got to do. It says, it says uh, then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animals. So not only do you have to kill it and take the blood and put it on the doorposts in the, in the, uh, uh, of your house, but now you got to go inside and eat it too. This thing's been living in your house for four days. You know, it's, it's, gone from, it's gone from the little annoying pest that you're like, why we got this in our house, to the kids being like, Daddy, I like the lamb, to now we got to kill the lamb, son. What? Why we got to kill Chip? I, don't, I mean, I, I'm not really super fond of him, but this seems extreme, right? And so they, they, they kill the lamb and they do the, and then they go in and they eat him and you're like, man, this is disturbing, right? But the only way to stave off the judgment of God was to have a blood sacrifice to pay the penalty and, and ward off the judgment of God. This is serious. It says that same night, uh, I'm sorry, verse nine, do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs must be roasted over fire. I didn't write the Bible. The Bible was pre-written. I just read it, okay? So this is what you're supposed to do. It says, do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. And so this is, the process. And so after 400 years of slavery, 
a deliverer shows up. And he says, the rules are getting ready to change for you forever. But in order for you to be able to step into your freedom, you have to change. How many of you know you can't keep the mindset of a slave and walk in freedom? One of the big issues that took place after the Emancipation Proclamation was put into effect on January 1st, 1863, was that there were many people who were freed by this Emancipation Proclamation that did not know they were free. The word didn't get out to them. They didn't know. And so they continued to live as slaves, even though they were free, because nothing had changed for them. A declaration had been made but their life circumstances hadn't changed. And so something had to change. First, somebody had to come to them and say, you don't have to live like this anymore. You're free. But after the message was announced, guess what? They had to relearn how to do life. A couple of years ago, or actually last year, last, um, last summer, I read Booker T. Washington's autobiography, and I highly recommend it to anybody who likes to read. Um, it, is, it is such a fascinating story to read firsthand somebody that endured slavery in America, came out of slavery, and, and led multitudes out of enslaved mindsets by founding the Tuskegee Institute, the principles that he applied to help people embrace their freedom was absolutely life-changing, transforming, powerful. And so what God has to do in his people that have been enslaved for 400 years is he's got to break apart the old mindset. Because you can take the people out of Egypt, but it takes a while to get Egypt out of the people. Right? Can I tell you something, guys? I'm going to step away from the text for a second, but this happens in your life sometimes. You come to Christ, and he says, you are free, but you continue to live like a slave. You continue to go back and do the same things that have kept you in bondage for your whole life. You continue to think the way that you always thought. You continue to behave the way that you always behaved, and you think, hey, it's good. I'm free. My sins are forgiven, but you're still living like a slave. It's not enough for you to know you're free. You got to live free too. If you continue to stay in chains, you're not really free, are you? You're not really free, but you don't have the same master, but you have the same position. And so God comes in play to kind of shift things and listen to what he does. Flip over to Exodus chapter 13. Because now God is going to institute what's already a principle. Now he's going to formalize it. And the law was given, by the way, to show the Israelites what free people look like when they live. Now, most people think of the law as kind of bondage, right? And, and even when we look at the, the New Testament writers, they refer to the taskmaster of the law, right? But but when it was instituted and implemented, part of the reason why the law was instituted was it was to show the people of Israel the, the culture of heaven, 
This is what freedom looks like. It's set apart to God. And if you'll follow this plan for living, it will really free you up. The problem is, is that the way that the law was set up in the beginning was it was set up that people had to follow the law in order to gain access to heaven. But now... In the New Testament model, and we're going to read about this in a second, but we don't have to follow the law to get to heaven. We have to follow Jesus to get to heaven. Right? Anytime you want to go somewhere, it's good to follow somebody that's heading in that direction, right? And and if you're going someplace that only one person has the route to get there, you should probably follow them. And I always say, I don't know what everybody else is doing, but I'm following the one that rose from the dead. I don't know what you're doing. I'm going with the guy that rose from the dead. Whatever he's doing, that's what I want to do. However he's living, that's how I want to live. You can have people tell me all day long that that's not fun, that's not great. You got, oh, wow, I'm sorry you have to. I'm not sorry I have to live this way. I live this way because it's the fruit of righteousness that God's forming in me, and it's what freedom lived out looks like. I like it. You know, here's here's the great benefit. When you follow things God's way, wrath is not unpacked in your life. The reason that you have wrath unpacked in your life is because you're stepping outside of God's boundaries for your life. People end up in jail. Why? Why? Because they stepped outside of God's boundaries. People end up with certain diseases. Why? Because we've stepped outside of God's boundaries, right? We, we have all of these things that we look at and we say, oh man, if I would stay in God's lane, I would find out that it's not quite as crazy as it is over in that lane. And everybody calls this lane the fast lane. I call it the crash lane, right? Because it's headed for destruction. And so as we look at this, I want to I look now, Exodus chapter 13, Verse one, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. Who does it belong to? God. So God owns all the firstborn. It's not yours. And you say, well, it's my lamb. No, it's not. It's God's lamb. And so God has the right to it. Now listen down here, verse 12. It says, you must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord for they belong to him. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a young goat in its place. But if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. Okay, so here's where, and, and this is the thing, guys. Sometimes we read stuff like this, and how many of you guys, I've been guilty of this in my life. You're reading through scripture, and you read over things like that. You just read past it, because you're like, okay, and there's lamb, blah, 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 and there's blood, and there's blah, 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 and there's a break in a donkey's neck, and I don't even know why we're breaking a donkey's neck, and then there's, like, and then there's a kid, and you got to have your kid bought back with a, okay. All right, can we go to Psalms now? You know, like, it's something, right? You're just kind of, how many of you guys do that? Have you, have you ever done that before? Okay, I've been guilty of that in my life. But here's what I think is, is so up. This is strategic because this is setting the stage for Jesus. The difference between the donkey and the lamb is the donkey represents every animal that's unclean and the lamb represents that which is clean. In order to buy back the unclean, the clean has to be sacrificed. 
You feel that? So when God sends Jesus, Jesus is God's firstborn. We're all God's children, but we're all unclean. So in order for the unclean to be redeemed, the clean had to be sacrificed. How's that hit you? Do you see how this plays out? Now, here's Jesus, right? Celebrating Passover with his disciples. And he says, guys, check this out. This hasn't happened yet, but this is coming. And it's coming quick. I'm going to be the Passover lamb. See, you guys in this room, you're all unclean, but don't worry. I got you. I got you. And, and Jesus, he, he, takes, he takes the bread. And he breaks it. And the scripture says, he, he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body. Broken for you. Do this to remember me. And then he eats it. And they're like, whoa, Passover just got creepy. Right? Like, seriously, you and I, we do it all the time. But this is the first time it happened. And Jesus has already done some weird stuff where he says like, Hey, unless you eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And everybody's like, whoa. Can we just back this up for just a second, Jesus? Because it sounded like you said, unless we eat your flesh and drink your blood. Now, we, like 2,000 years later, we're like, oh, I got it. Yeah, right? But, like, you're the disciple. You're hearing this for the first time. And you're like, uh... Okay, so circumcision is tough. But now, what are we doing here, Jesus? Because this is different. Like, we, we haven't done this before. And then now he pulls them together at the Passover, and he's like, hey, remember, you know how this, we got it the lamb and there's the blood and you're like why do we have to kill chip no you know how that works right it's getting ready to happen to me you've been you've been rolling around with me for three years guys and before the fourth year starts i'm going to be sacrificed the one you've come to love is going to be sacrificed i'm going to be slaughtered my blood's going to be poured out And this is the symbol of this sacrifice. My body broken for you. The wine that's in this cup is a symbol of my blood that's poured out for you. Wow. And so the disciples are visibly upset. And then what happens is it starts spiraling out of control quickly. Right? Because Judas goes and betrays Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus at the Last Supper says, hey, Judas, you're going to betray me. Why don't you go do it, man? Go. And Judas leaves. He's like, all right. You know, and he goes and, and does it. 
I, oh, that's one of those things that has always been a, a hang-up for me because I read it and I'm like, man, if Jesus is looking at me eyeball to eyeball and he says, you're going to betray me right now, go do it. Like, I'm the kind of guy that I'm like, I changed my mind. I, I think I'll hang here, Lord. Peter, wait, why don't you go? You go, you go do, right? But Judas is like, okay. And he goes and does it. And he leads the, the guard to, to get Jesus. And then they arrest Jesus. And they say, are you the one that we're looking for? And he says, I am. And when he says, I am, they all fall on the ground. He's like, are you the one we're looking for? I am. It's, it's, for me, it's one of those deals. It's like Jesus identifying him as God, the same God that appeared at the burning bush, right? And, and for me, it's always kind of like he lets a little glory slip out. And he's like, oops, sorry, guys. You can get up now. Okay, come arrest me. You know, it's like, it's just like, what? And, and nobody seems to care. They're like, yeah, we're going to arrest you now. Okay, right? And, and Peter, remember their, their whole ministry walking with Jesus? He's like, don't take your sword. You're not going to need it. You're with me. But then right before he's arrested, he tells the guys, hey, you're probably going to need to grab a sword. And so Peter's like, all right, I'm going to go down to the firearms dealer. I'll pick a couple up for the fellas. You know, because you know Peter's going to have a sword. Like if anybody's going to have a sword, it's Peter, right? And so so then they come and they're like going to get him. And Peter's like, you know, he's going after dudes. He goes after Malchus and Malchus is like, like, you know, that was the, the matrix, right? And he's like, because you know, Peter's not aiming for his ear. He's like, I'm going to try to do a clean surgical cut on his ear there and see, see how good I am with this thing. No, he's aiming ahead. Fortunately, he's not a good aim because what would that miracle have looked like, right? As it is, Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear. He's like, puts it back on. Hey, that'll be, it'll be all right. You'll, you'll be fine. Can you imagine if Peter had actually connected? Jesus like, Pete, come on, man. And we got to do the whole head. Golly. You know, and like, oh, Malchus is good. He's got his head back. You know, that's like, how do you crucify that guy? Right? And so, but this is, this is the process. This is the way it works. And so as we look at this thing happening, as we see this unfolding, the disciples are watching the fulfillment of Passover lived out before their eyes. The communion made flesh walking in front of them. Like they've observed him their whole lives or for the last three years, they've watched him as he's performing miracle after miracle after miracle, and their faith is at an all-time high. They're watching what he's doing as he's being captured by the, the temple guard, and then he gets taken away. And they're like, what's going on? When's he, when's he gonna call down the angels from heaven? When, when's he gonna tighten all of this up and we're gonna reestablish Israel as the region's superpower instead of Rome? When are we gonna depose this hostile government? that has invaded our territory. When are we going to do that? And so they just wait and they watch. 
is Jesus is beaten. He's put on trial. He's, he's given up instead of a known murderer. He's nailed to a cross and he dies. It's insane. But I want you to hear this. This is so cool. Because Jesus perfectly fulfills the Passover and becomes the communion, right? Because listen to this. The lamb had to be without blemish, right? Jesus was examined and found without blemish. Even on his trial before Pilate, what's Pilate say? I don't see anything wrong. This guy didn't do anything. Matter of fact, because I am condemning him, I need to go and do some ritual purification because I am now a guilty man. But he's not guilty. So the lamb is without blemish. The lamb was a firstborn male. Jesus, the firstborn son of God. The lamb was set aside for four days on the 10th day of Nisan. Palm Sunday that we celebrate is... Celebrate on the 10th day of Nisan. Not the car, but just like the month, okay? So he's, he's chosen on the 10th day of Nisan. He goes into Jerusalem and is chosen as the sacrificial lamb. And he interacts at the temple for four days. For four days. Just like the lamb that had to live in the house for four days, Jesus does the same thing. Presents himself among the people for four days. In Exodus 13, the clean had to be sacrificed so that the unclean could be redeemed. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is doing? It's so powerful. I'm telling you guys, the lamb was killed at 3 p.m. What time does Jesus say, it is finished? 3 p.m. Jesus dies. Such weird coincidences, isn't it? The blood on the doorposts stopped the wrath of God. The blood on the cross stopped the wrath of God. The Israelites, check this out. Think about these Israelites huddled in their home with this little lamb. And the word is out that God's judgment is coming and God's going to kill the firstborn. Can you imagine little Johnny at home? Like watching over his little brother and little sister, thinking, what if nothing happens the way it's supposed to happen? What if things don't go down the way I hope it's going to go down? Dad, can you do something to stop it? No, I can't do anything. It's only the lamb. Can, can, you, can you stand in the way of God's wrath? No, I can't do anything to stop it. Only the lamb can stop it. It's the message for you and me, guys. You can't do anything to stop the wrath of God. But the lamb already did it. And applying the blood of Jesus to your life changes everything. Stops God's wrath. And makes you a son. And then scripture says that Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, remember there was an old covenant and now we celebrate the new covenant, right? 
both of them from our vantage point are old covenants, right? Because they happened a long time ago. But they apply to us in a new way. The new covenant applies to us in a different way. Because now we don't depend on the blood of bulls and goats, and we don't depend on the law. We depend on Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. This is why communion is so important. I'm going to invite our ushers, if you guys would come and begin to pass out the elements as I kind of land the plane here. As As we're just processing this, I think it's so important because both Isaiah and Ezekiel prophesy about the new covenant. They tell that it's coming. They say there's a new covenant coming. And it's going to be written in the blood of the Messiah. Watch for it. Wait for it. You know what's interesting is between the between the fall of Babylon or between the fall of uh Jerusalem to Babylon and the time Jesus comes, guess what? It's about 400 years. Isn't that wild? You can go ahead and start passing out. Yeah, thank you. So it's about 400 years. How long were they slaves in Egypt? 400 years. How long between the time that Babylon conquered Jerusalem to the time Jesus came? About 400 years. All these just weird coincidences, you know, just weird. Thank you. I just, I love the way that the Bible fits together so perfectly. And and Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover. Who does, who does this fulfillment apply to? You. It applies to me. It applies to you. You get the benefit of the fulfillment of the Passover in the person of Jesus. His blood transforms your life. So Passover was started as a celebration of Israel's freedom. And guess what? Communion is a celebration of our freedom. This, every time we celebrate communion, it's our spiritual independence day. We don't celebrate with fireworks. We celebrate with a cup and a piece of bread. But this is our Independence Day that we celebrate. When we celebrate communion, we don't, we don't participate in what's called closed communion where you have to be a member of the church or anything to participate in communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, we all do this together. Everyone who follows Jesus should participate in communion because it's our way to remember Jesus. Not, again, just his death, burial, and resurrection, but remembering Jesus. Remember who he is. He's freedom in the flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We remember that. We don't just remember the cross. We don't just remember an empty tomb. We remember Jesus. We put him front and center. We think about who he is and what he's done. One of the things that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to just read it real fast. If everybody will just hold off eating until we can all eat and drink together. Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's a big 
words, right? Some of you may or may not have heard that before. It says, that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. And you're like, nobody ever read that before. Right? So this is important. And it's not something that should scare us, but it's something that should put in the very forefront of our mind how important and significant communion is for the people of God. And so Paul tells us that we're supposed to examine our hearts. And so as we participate in communion, I just want to take a second and I want us to examine our hearts. If you, if you think of anything that you're like, God, just will you forgive me for this? Then just take it to God. But let's just take about 30 seconds. Just quiet your heart. Let's just be quiet in the room. And let's just make our hearts right with God.